0: Our scripture today confronts us with some bad news, but then it gives us the good news of God's promise to us. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse number 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Well, I got some more bad news for you. And that is that I don't know anything. Oh, great. You you tune into this show and you have a minister who doesn't know anything. Well, uh, I don't want to seem to suffer from an excess of humility, so let me quickly assure you that you don't know anything either. Neither do the others. None of us do. Let us remember that we dwell in a world of profound mystery and that the God that we worship, the creator of that world, is even more mysterious. Thomas Edison, one of the greatest minds of our country, put it this way, We do not even begin to understand 1% about 90% of anything. So, that's not good news. But first we have to come to grips with the idea of the mystery that we are surrounded with. And the first thing that we need to do is to admit our own ignorance rather than deny it. We try to deny it, but then when that doesn't work, that tactic doesn't work, I tell myself, well, I may not know much, but there are other people that do. For for instance, doctors, I've always been impressed by the great body of their knowledge. And then a tragic thing happened. I became friends with some doctors. And in late night conversations, I began to understand the limitations of medical knowledge. I'm just reading a book right now by Bill Bryson called The Body and Owner's Manual. And it's a wonderful book in which he explains all the different organs in the body and their functions and what they do. But ultimately, so many times over and over in the book, he'll say, and we really don't know why this happens or the appendix. We don't even know why it's there, what it does. It's still a tremendous mystery to us. I remember years ago I saw the movie The Elephant Man with a friend of mine who was a doctor. And as we walked out of the theater, it's that movie, recall about, a, it's a true life story about a man named John Merrick. He, and he was so hideously deformed. He lived in Victorian England uh, in London. And he was so hideously deformed that the only job that he could get was as a circus freak. And as we left the theater, my doctor friend said, well, Uh, Merrick was suffering from a very severe form of a disease called neurofibromatosis. I said, oh, interesting. So what would you do for him today? And he said, oh, nothing. We don't know what causes neurofibromatosis, and we have no idea how to cure it. But we do now have a name. Well, maybe all along in your heart, you knew that doctors don't know anything, but certainly there are other people that know things. How about the hard sciences, you know, physics and those kind of things. But as you know, physics is based on or founded by Isaac Newton. And when that apple dropped on his head, he discovered gravity. And certainly we all know about gravity. Indeed, he developed a mathematical formula that says that two bodies attract each other with a force which is proportional to their masses and inversely proportional to the distance between them. Simple, right? We know all about gravity. But why? Why do two bodies attract each other? Why is there this force? We know how to describe it, but we don't know why it is or why it even should be. And again, on a more basic level, other than just describing it exists, we don't know anything about gravity. Well, And then closer to home, there are the theologians, the theology professors, the biblical scholars, the pastors. All you have to do is go to seminary to find out that they don't know anything. I had uh, the privilege to go to the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, which at that time was the largest theological faculty in the world. There were eight different schools that banded together to form this consortium, 280 professors. And if you were enrolled in one, you could take courses at any of the others. But as you went from school to school and course to course, the answers to the big questions were often very, very different. They weren't all the same. And then when you come to really important questions like, why was Jenny Thompson born without arms? Why did God create a world with earthquakes and typhoons? Why did God create it at all? Why did Aunt Judy get cancer? And whatever their th- theology, we find ourselves puzzled. It's okay, we're in good company. Job didn't get his questions answered either. We Christians, like all the rest, try to deny the mystery in our world and in our God. One of the saddest things about 20th century American Christianity is that in our search for answers, we've lost our love for mystery. We've lost the ancient sense of awe that caused the Hebrews to refrain from even speaking the Almighty's name and writing it without vowels. We've forgotten the virtue of wonder. And when we lose wonder, we lose an appreciation of the majesty and power and otherness of God. Without wonder, we pray to God like a cosmic bellboy psychoanalyze him like a schizophrenic. Without wonder, we worship as if we understood. We endeavor to nail God down to explain him in a book or a course or a speech. But the essence of God is mystery, and that is to say that we can never nail God down. And even with Jesus, the nails proved ultimately ineffective. So, 2,000 years later, after these words were written, we still, as the King James Version says, see through a glass darkly. Or some say, see in a dim mirror. But then someday, the promise is, we shall see face to face. Someday the mystery will be comprehended. Someday we'll understand why people get cancer Why earthquakes and floods kill thousands? Why millions starve? Why God loves us so much? Someday God will take off our dark glasses and we'll be ushered into the light of his kingdom and we will feel his warmth on our tear-stained faces and we will see for the first time. But for now, we're left with the mystery. We're left looking at the world through a dark glass, through a dim mirror. The dark glass is not selective. It covers the eyes of Christians and non Christians alike. So, what's the difference? Well, Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians that when Christians con- confront this problem of the dark glass, the dim mirror, he says this We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not unto despair. I love that. We are perplexed, but not into despair. That's the only healthy attitude toward the mystery that surrounds us. Well, there are two other options that are commonly chosen. So let's take a quick look at them, lest we fall into their trap. Well, the first option is to join those people who are not even perplexed. It's a tempting option. And a lot of Christians have chosen to find their home in this group. The non-perplexed stay as far away from mystery as they can. In fact, they use their religion to escape from mystery. And then when it intrudes upon their lives, they repulse it. They write handy-dandy little books like How to Know the Will of God, Five Steps to a Happy Life, God's Plan for the Future. For these people, there is no question so large that a little answer cannot be found. No mystery so great that it cannot be explained in the three-point sermon or outlined on an overhead projector. The answer, they say, is Jesus, with no comprehension, that although that is ultimately true, right now he is more a part of the question. Karl Barth put it well when he said, Jesus is not the answer, but the question the shadowing disturbance that covers our lives and causes us to question that which we had once uncritically accepted. And a lot of us in the church refuse to be bothered by the questions. Now, the non-perplexed also include a lot of people in the secular world, people whose view of life is simply based on acquisition of power or worldly success. People who wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and wonder more about how much they weigh than how much they love. People for whom there's no question or problem so great that a good raise and a new Mercedes couldn't fix. Then there's the other extreme, those who are perplexed to the point of despair. For some people, the mysteries and problems of this world prove so weighty. For some, the glass through which they peer seems so dark that they are driven to despair. They write plays like Sartre's No Exit, where existence is a living hell, or Beckett's Waiting for Godot, in which life is described as a meaningless wait for the arrival of nothing. Or Kafka's The Metamorphosis, in, in which a depressed, sad teenage boy wakes up one morning to find that he has changed into a giant cockroach. Now that's depressing. Then there are the followers of Christ, whom Paul described in 2 Corinthians. He said they are perplexed, but not into despair. It's a tricky balance. Paul says that we are to accept the mystery and our lack of understanding and our lack of answers, and to acknowledge our perplexed state, but into no way despair. Rainer Maria Rilke, in his book Letters to a Young Poet, wrote to a young man, Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart, and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers that cannot be given to you, because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now, and perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. For the Christian, it's not a matter of perhaps, it's God's promise that by living with God's questions in this life, we will have the answers revealed in the next. Why are we perplexed but not into despair? Because just as it's true, as Edison said, that we don't understand 1% of 99% of anything, it's also true that the 1% that we do understand makes all the difference in the world. What we do know is that Jesus Christ died for us, and that on the cross God reconciled us to himself and gave us the promise of new life. If we only had that one verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only... If that's all we had, that one little thing, it would be enough to make all the difference. The other reason that Christians refuse to despair is that we've got work to do. We don't give up in resignation and despair because God has given us the job of being his hands and his feet in the world. We're to be so busy waging peace, feeding the hungry, working for justice, befriending the outcasts, that we just don't have time for despair. I heard the story of a young boy who went to a big church potluck, and he was there and he came up to The oldest member of the church, just little old lady, face all wrinkled. And he came up and he just looked at her and he said, if you're so old, how come you're not dead? (laughs) She just laughed and said, well, I've thought about it several times. But uh, every time I get ready to just go over and lay down and die, somebody asks for a sandwich. And I go make it for him. And I just haven't had time yet. We don't despair because there is a lot of sandwiches out there for us to make for this world, and we don't have time for despair. I close with this story. There was a businessman, a very self-important guy, who got lost one day. He was in a strange city. He was taking a shortcut, and he just got, found himself lost. And so he's in this neighborhood, and he stops to ask the first person that he sees for directions, And this little girl, she's playing in the front yard of her home. And he rolls down the window and he says, Excuse me, excuse me, uh, which way to Union Street? She said, I I don't know. He said, Well, well, where's Highway 84? She said, "I I don't know. He said, For heaven's sake, which direction is north? She said, I don't know. And he just exploded with rage. He said, you don't know much, do you? She said, no, but I'm not lost. I think that's going to be my new motto. I don't know much, but I'm not lost. You see, what we do know makes all the difference in the world. To trust in God, even when we're facing the unknown, is to proclaim to all the world, I'm not lost. Brothers and sisters, we, not, we may not know much, but none of us are lost because of the cross of christ we have a home and a promise that one day we will see face to face and will be as t.s Eliot wrote in his poem we shall not cease from exploration and at the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time